Hi, Dar. Look at this. We're starting a new season already. It's fall outside. I can't believe it. What, what were you up to this summer? Anything fun? I went to Fire Island for a couple of weeks. That's a little resort island outside of New York City, and that was wonderful. How about you? We stayed regionally in the Southeast and did a little bit of traveling here and just now ready for a new season. That's right. Shall we start then? Okay. Let's do it. Welcome to season three of the RNBC Live podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I am Victoria Wolper, and together with my friend and co-host, Dar Finkelstein, we're thrilled to bring you another season of the Trailblaze of the Month series, where once a month, we shine a spotlight on organizations that serve the needs of the NBC community. Their hard work and dedication never ceases to amaze us, and we're excited to share their stories with you. And of course, as always, at the end of the episode, Dar will give us a dash of joy. We decided to do something different this season. We take the trailblazers closer to home. We're starting with your home of Charlotte. I have to say, Charlotte is great. It is a very philanthropic type of community. We are going to be highlighting two organizations in Charlotte that are truly grassroots, and they support the local breast cancer community, but in two very different ways. And the interesting thing about both, they were started by two women at about the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, who were both living with metastatic breast cancer. Both of them are no longer with us, but their idea is continuing, and it's pretty incredible what they have done. It is. It really is. The organization is Go Gen Go. Joe Pagani is her husband, and we spoke with him and the executive director of that organization, Susan Sears. And Joe was able to share with us Jen's story and her legacy. And you're going to be blown away by what this woman did while she was living with metastatic breast cancer and small children. She was an Ironman participant. She was an elite athlete. So anybody who's ever told you that uh, you may be at fault for not exercising enough or not eating right, here is a person who did everything right. Yeah. And the, the other person was a young woman who got breast cancer and then realized that all she wanted was to get some other people who had breast cancer to talk to. And so she ended up starting an organization that just kept growing and growing. And it's now known as Carolina Breast Friends. And we spoke with Lynn Erdman, who is the executive director of that organization. And actually, that organization has taken in our metastatic support group mm -hmm. and has given us a home. They have let us come into what they call the pink house and start having our meetings there. So they're embracing the metastatic community, too. So without further ado. Well, I tell you what, since we're going to be in Charlotte, North Carolina, let's get you all into a southern frame of mind. Grab a tall glass of iced tea and settle in to hear how just one person 
can make a difference. And in this case, two. Two. <laughs> the first person Darren I spoke to was Joe Pagani, founder of the Go Gen Go Foundation. His wife Jen was a truly amazing woman. She was a two-time Ironman finisher and an advocate for others. Diagnosed with IBC shortly after having her second son, she was not expected to last a year. But she had six more years to spend with her two boys and give her hometown Go Gen Go, a nonprofit she and Joel started soon after her diagnosis. Jen knew she wanted to make an impact and help those in her situation. The Go Gen Go Foundation provides critical financial assistance to people in the greater Charlotte area who are dealing with breast cancer. Here is Joe to share with us Jen's incredible story and her legacy. I'm Victoria Goldberg, and of course, you know Dar. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for what you're doing. It's actually quite incredible. That's a, a great segue into what I think would be the, the first thing is to have you share with us Jen's story. And of course, that would ultimately be your story, too. So if you could share that with us and how the whole organization of Go Django came to be. Absolutely. I'm happy to. Jen was an amazing woman, amazing mother, amazing athlete. She was a, a triathlete, an Ironman finisher. She swam all her life and broke records all her life. So she was in incredible shape. And cancer diagnosis was an extremely surprising thing for us, as it is for everybody. But, you know, you, you think that somebody of that high physical caliber is immune to, to everything. And that's just not true. We had just had our second son, Luca. He was two months old. Jen was breastfeeding and found a lump. When something like this happens... Your friends and family bring you the casseroles, bring you the dinners, bring you food. And that's the, that's the one way they, they feel like they can help in something. And we were just inundated with meals at our doorstep. My freezer was full. I was trying to give away meals every day. And it, people still wanted to help. So they would send us Trader Joe gift cards and Harris Teeter gift cards and restaurants and things. Our cup runneth over. We had so much support and it was wonderful. And Jen would be in the infusion room. It was about 30 chairs. And she knew most of those people were struggling. She would take that stack of gift cards that we got every week and bring them into the infusion center and give them to the people who needed that much more than we did. And I think we realized at that moment that there was this huge giving community that wanted to help. And then there was this you know, population of people who needed that help. And we could kind of be the conduit between those two groups and, and make good things happen. So that's how Go Gen Go was born. That phrase, our neighbors painted on a huge banner when she went for her second Ironman. So we used that and we ran in the Komen race and we had the largest team they had ever had. We had 420 people on our team. It was bigger than the Bank of America team and bigger than any of the other corporate teams. It was that event that made me think we need to put some structure around this. We could really do some good things with all the support. Later that year, I incorporated in North Carolina as a nonprofit. And then two years later, we got our 501c3 from the IRS. And that's when it became 
you know, official that we could really get donations from corporate donors. It was right after Jen was diagnosed that we started putting this together. Let me ask, how's this affected your family? I'm very fortunate that Jen laid some great foundation in our two sons. Rocco was two years old at diagnosis. Luca was two months old. When Jen was diagnosed, we went to Duke for a second opinion. And one of the best doctors in the world was at Duke at that time. And Jen was, she was a nurse, so she could speak the language. It was all Latin to me as I was sitting in the corner of the room, just my eyes crossed. But she pressed him and she said, how long do I have? And he said, I absolutely refuse to answer that kind of question. Everybody is different. You can't put a number on that. And she finally said, let me ask you this. Have you ever had an IBC patient with her too new? Her septin was just barely out at that time. And she said, have you ever had a patient live longer than a year with this diagnosis? And he shook his head and he looked down. He said, no. So she said, all right, thank you. That's what I have. I have my one-year prognosis, and uh, I just need her to know that. And so she fought for six and a half years because she wanted Luca to know who she was and Rocco. And she did a great job with building the foundation of those two boys so that when I took over as a single dad, they already had such a, a, a firm foundation watching their mom be a giving, loving, caring person while she was fighting for her life. And I remember very clearly when hospice came in and finally she accepted a hospital bed. The guy came in, set it up. She was on the couch in the den and I was thanking him as he was leaving and she could barely talk. And she said, Joe, bring him in here. And I brought the guy in and she said, thank you so much. And he walked out and get a little choked up. He walked out and he was crying. He said, I've set up a thousand beds in houses and no one's ever thanked me for doing that. It's actually quite incredible that when you are yourself newly diagnosed and so overwhelmed by your own diagnosis, to be in that infusion room that's scary to everyone and to think about others around you. We're incredibly sorry that she didn't live long enough to do so many more good things, but you clearly continuing in her name and your boys have a great example to grow by. Thank you. I agree. I think this foundation is giving them a little taste of what their mom would be doing right now with them. They remember their mom fondly. We talk about her almost every day and this foundation keeps her legacy alive in their minds and in their eyes. For the first 10 years, we um, had voluntary board members and committee members and everything like that, so that every single dime that we received went back into the hands of survivors. We had no overhead whatsoever. As we grew, it became harder and harder to keep that up. But what we still have is a 100% voluntary board and committee chair people and committee members. We have one paid position. That's our executive director, Susan Sears. Now we're seeing great growth over the past two or three years that she's been ED here. And it's really grown our fundraising so much more than we could have ever done on a strictly volunteer basis. So 
that's how we're set up. And I think it's a strong statement about the people that we have on the board wanting to just help and care and give. What are some of the ways that you guys are are raising funds? You've got a nice opportunity coming up here on October 2nd, I know. Our metastatic group has registered uh, for awesome. the, the race on the 2nd. So. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, we're very fortunate to have Molly Grantham from WBTV as a longtime GoGenGo fanatic from, as a matter of fact, from our very first Run Gen Run where Jen was still alive in 2013. Molly was our MC. She's been very involved with the um, foundation for many years. And she's organized that cupcake walk at the baseball stadium on the second, which sounds like a lot of fun. It's already got hundreds and hundreds of people signed up, which I'm excited about. That should be a great fundraiser for the beginning of October. Our biggest event is every year in March, we have the Run Gen Run. And that's our biggest fundraiser of the year. That's what keeps us going and keeps us able to support so many people. I've actually found my Run Gen Run. That was one of the last things that happened, I think, in the Charlotte area right before everything started to shut down. You know, you are so right. It's like the day before it shut down. And for two weeks... I held my breath thinking, please don't be a super spreader. (laughs) I thought that would be the end of our race if they came out and said, well, there was one event right before we shut down that was horrible. We got pretty lucky March of uh, 2020 to get the full race in. And then March of this year, we did it virtual. We netted about the exact same amount of money which is fantastic. We had enough virtual people from around the country, from as far as California and up Connecticut, participate in that virtual run. So we're planning on having it in person in March this year. I have to say, I think we're very fortunate here in Charlotte to have your organization. And I think that that you guys have done just such an incredible job filling that gap that isn't filled anywhere else really in this area. Before we part, I wanted to ask you, so what do you do for fun? Is there anything that you like to do? Triathlons (laughs) maybe? I wish I could say that I was half the athlete Jen was. I did a mini triathlon back in the early days and and it, it beat me up. Luca plays football and Rocco plays lacrosse. They both love those sports, so they're doing it year round. And so I'm just a carpool driver. That's basically what my free time is spent, which I don't mind one bit. Uh, Jen's legacy is in, in part an inspiration to others of us to do the same thing in other parts of the country. We can see how much an impact just one person and their desire to do something can have, I think. I agree. One of her favorite quotes, I believe it's credited to Ronald Reagan, that we can't help everybody, but everybody can help someone. Our next guest was GoGenGo Executive Director Susan Sears, who said, We're trying to help people stay focused on their treatment rather than having to worry about their finances. I just want to thank both of you for hearing about us and inviting us to be a part of um, your podcast. No, it's actually, we are the ones who have to thank you 
for being here with us, for doing what you do. And mm -hmm. we're, we're so grateful. Thank you. And Thank you. because uh, all things will and should go to Dar. She's the one who was your champion. <laughs> I would let Dar start the questions rolling. Well, I'd like to have you tell us about Go Django and about the mission and what actual services you guys provide. Sure. So Go Django started with Jen giving out gift cards. They also did what we call Operation Spread the Joy. During the holidays, they heard of individuals that were in need and stepped in and helped provide gifts for their family during the holidays. And so that has continued on with us. Our mission is to help anyone with breast cancer, any stage. We help them with their household bills while they are going through treatment. So that our four main categories of support are housing, utilities, transportation, and then groceries. And that's what Jen really wanted to support individuals with. I was completely blown away by Joe's story of Jen. And now you reiterated the same thing, that she was an exceptional human being. I would like to know, why did you decide to start working in a nonprofit for breast cancer? Okay. <laughs> in 2004, I lost my mother-in-law to metastatic breast cancer. And that was a very big loss in my life. I was just so angry and upset that a wonderful individual was taken away at 57 years old and that my son was two years old when she passed and that he was going to miss that and that she didn't have enough time with him. It was something that I felt in my bones and I just had to do something about it. I became the race chair for the Race for the Cure. I did that for two years in a row. And through that is how I met Jen. And whatever Jen was doing, I wanted to be a part of it. So I was so grateful that she reached out and asked if I want to be part of her race committee for the 5K, um, which we call Run, Jen, Run. And I immediately said yes, of course. Unfortunately, Jen passed before we were able to host the second event. But after that, I just continued to volunteer. I asked to be on the board of directors. And then we talked about hiring someone part-time. And so I raised my hand and said, pick me. <laughs> so I started as our first um, executive director in January of 2018. And I will just tell you, this is my dream job. It's the survivors and drivers and fighters like yourselves that just motivate me to do whatever I can. And I won't stop until something happens, hopefully, that um, eliminates this from our vocabulary. One thing that we are working on is the fact that Jen's not here anymore to tell the story. Finding someone that's willing to share their story publicly to help us show the impact that GoJango is having is really just critical for us. So there's 
several survivors that we support and then they'll reach out and say, you did this for me and what can I do for you now? And that's just goes to show the strength of the organization. And that it just always warms my heart when someone's like, okay, I'm good, which I love to hear, obviously. (laughs) And now what can I do? Do you want to share with us maybe a little bit about what events you have in order to help raise funds? So our signature events are our race, which is held in early March. That is a 5K, a fun run, festival of sorts. And we typically have a 1,000 to 1,200 people out there, about 75 volunteers and sponsors set up and promote their businesses in our expo area. One thing that we do at our race is collaborate with Speed for Need, which is a group that pushes survivors and thrivers that are unable to go on their own. In October, we host what we call Cheers Gen Cheers, which is a Panthers tailgate get together. Now, with COVID, we've changed it to drive through tailgates where you pick up takeout, <laughs> basically. Um, it's a, a dinner for four. We're doing that again this year. And then outside of that, we have other organizations that host events and we're the beneficiary for. Mm-hmm. You're raising some more money here. So what are you going to do with that? What are your future goals? So with the additional publicity, we're definitely having an influx of applications. And so as much as we can, we're we're going to be putting that money out into the community. And that's my immediate goal to be able to cover expenses for individuals as quickly as possible. I, like to say we have about a three-week turnaround. We don't want people to wait and deal with a lot of paperwork or whatnot when I get more time, (laughs) which I don't know when that'll happen, but I have goals for providing more services for the women and men that we are helping. I would love to host monthly get-togethers where We're bringing in another organization maybe that's helping with any array of things that could come up, mental health and just financial literacy and having fun too. Something that brings everyone together and lets them be with each other, supporting if they want to talk great if they want to just be there and participate that's great as as well you said that uh you have a lot more applications lately and of course as we know the number of people in need doesn't go down so i would assume that you have more applications that you can uh, handle when we do have an influx and they're eligible for funding we're never saying no they're just moving to the next grant cycle. We really are looking for people that are financially struggling and have bills that are past due. About 55 to 60% of our applications come through referrals Mm -hmm. from social workers, nurse navigators at the hospitals. For 2020, we quickly adapted to 
the pandemic because there was a massive influx of applications with people losing their jobs, health insurance. As I'm seeing the applications come in, I connected with our board of directors and we immediately increased the amount of money that we were granting out each month, which allowed us to increase overall by 28% for the year. So last year we supported 240 families and granted out approximately $138,000. And amazing that we were able to do that during a year of uncertainty, but we knew that there wasn't an option to be saying no. For the first half of 2021, we've supported 118 so far, but granted out about $60,000. And so our average grant amount is about $500. And as far as the categories of support, we're seeing that housing is 46% of the requests. Utilities is 18%. Transportation is 21%. And groceries, necessities is 15%. And then we like to say that we're giving out 100% of hope. And your recipients are in the Charlotte community? They are in the greater Charlotte area. If they live outside and they're coming to what we consider greater Charlotte location for treatment. Mm -hmm. So my goal, when we talked about raising more money and where is it going to go, of course, I should say another part of that is expanding our footprint. Mm -hmm. So that would be wonderful. I have a question for you. Whenever you said they come back and they say, this is how long my treatment plan is, mm-hmm. how do you handle whenever a metastatic patient then comes to you? Because we have a treatment plan of forever. <laughs> right, right. And so, so we're a little different. Yes, yes. <laughs> you are. And that's something that as an organization, we need to determine, honestly, right now applications come in and we're supporting in our general time frame of about six months and then reaching back out, seeing how things are. But that's something that we need to define better. There is an organization that uh, we interviewed last season out of Miami. They called 305 Pink Pack and they do a very similar thing for the greater Miami area. What they do for their metastatic community is they give a one-time grant. Oh, fantastic. So Susan, you help so many people, but I have a question for you. How can people help you? Either donations, volunteering, and how do they find you to help you? Yes, we are certainly looking for individuals to help support us with our events as a volunteer, looking for members to join our board to further enhance um, and diversify ourselves and to bring other areas of expertise to our conversations and to make sure that we're leading ourselves into the right direction and supporting individuals as they need to be supported. Donations are wonderful. We have recently created what we call Jen's Legacy, which is a monthly giving program. And so that is something that helps us know 
we have this amount of money coming and we're able to grant that money directly back to the community. Our website is gojango.org and I can be reached at susan at gojango.org and really just looking for passionate individuals that want to give back and help us get better. I have to say the Charlotte area and Gojango are both very fortunate to have you. And your organization is a shining star in the breast cancer community Mm -hmm. here. Thank you. Now I'm going to ask you one other hard question. In three words, can you describe your organization? Hope for survivors. We were joined by Marion Kaufman, PhD and Associate Professor at UNC Charlotte and a member of the Charlotte Menster Support Group. As we spoke with Lynn Erdman, Executive Director of Carolina Breast Friends, this organization was born from the desire of one woman, Christy Adams Abel, to speak with others who were going through breast cancer like her. Christy's vision grew and grew into a thriving organization committed to uniting and helping women and men with all stages of breast cancer by creating educational and social outlets. Christy died in 2006, but her legacy lives on. And here are Marin and Dar speaking with Lynn Erdman. Lynn, it's so wonderful to meet you, and I'm Victoria. I will uh, stay quiet for the rest of this interview. Of course, quiet for me is difficult. I will be listening and hopefully not interrupting. Okay, Lynn, I guess I'll start. I would like if you could just go back and spend a little bit of time telling us about how did the organization start and how did the Pink House come to be also? Sure. Carolina Breast Friends was founded in 2003 by a breast cancer survivor herself who wished to have a group of women, as she said at that point in time, to talk with about her diagnosis of breast cancer. She ended up running an ad in the Charlotte Observer and said, if you have breast cancer and you would like to gather with a group of us who also have breast cancer, please reach out to me. And sure enough, people reached out like crazy. And so that's how Carolina Breast Friends was formed. And they continued meeting. They met in people's homes. They met in churches. They met in schools. They met wherever they could find a place to meet and continue to do that as the organization grew. Her name was Christy Adams Ebel, and she was just a firecracker. She was a metastatic breast cancer survivor. And there were about 150 women that were part of the group that was meeting on a regular basis 
by the time Christy lost her life. But there were so many women, and that was about four years into the journey. There were so many women passionate about what Christy had started that they continued Carolina Breast Friends. She had named it. They had done a 501c3. They had done all of that. And her wish was to have a place for women and men to be able to come and gather in what she called a home-type environment. We were a safe place to be. So her wish was always to have, as she called it, a pink house. Um, She didn't get to see that happen, but this group of women continued her fight and sure enough, began raising money and began doing fundraisers. And by 2009, they had raised enough money to open a home. So they did some negotiation and actually were able to purchase the home that we are in today. And it opened at the end of 2010, and they hired their first employee in 2011. There are several women that actually started with her in that support group. They responded to the ad in the paper and are still part of Carolina Breast Friends today. And that's really pretty special. It's fun to hear their stories of working with Christy and seeing her vision. The house has really grown and flourished. What she wanted was a place that you could come, you could be safe, you could talk with other women or other men that have breast cancer, you could be connected to resources, and that you could also receive education and support, whether it be through a support group or whatever mechanism um, was available. And so that whole philosophy has grown immensely over the years. And one of the big things that we do that Christy really had a passion around was mentoring. So we offer people that are diagnosed with breast cancer the chance to talk with somebody. They can come here and talk with somebody, but a lot of times it's nicer to do a one-on-one with someone who's got a similar diagnosis to you, someone who may be a similar age. Maybe they've got the same number of kids you do, whatever it might be. Peer mentoring has been one of the best features and best programs that we have at the Pink House that really soared and took off during COVID. Mm. It was popular before, but when COVID hit and people really couldn't gather together in person, then the mentoring all of a sudden took on a new life of its own. And people were reaching out. They wanted to talk with someone. It was easy to do the mentoring because you could Zoom or you could talk on the phone or you could text back and forth or you could email, whatever worked, FaceTime, anything. And so we were able to not stop that part of the program and able to grow it. And we have added eight new mentors within the past just few months. Which is pretty. I'm, I'm one of those. Yeah, good, good. Me too. And so is Barrett. <laughs> so fantastic. We, we so, and, and just the nature of COVID as an illness really um, spearheaded some of that extra growth. And we also have contacts from outside of the Charlotte area. This started as a Charlotte kind of regional. Uh, program. And now people call us from many other places. And since we can do everything virtually, especially the mentoring, then we can connect people. It doesn't really matter where you live. 
if you're going through uh, a similar experience, then that's the part that bonds you, not the fact of where you live. It's been really interesting to see how COVID has changed the way that all of us connect. I think it'll be transformative and, and ongoing. Dara and I came to you as uh, women living with breast cancer. So we don't necessarily consider ourselves survivors. We are metastatic. So therefore have this ongoing day-to-day struggle that will never go away. And I could really relate to Christy's story in terms of wanting to connect with other women with metastatic breast cancer, feeling like we have some needs that are not always the same as early stage. So can you tell us some more about services or plans for services for women with metastatic breast cancer? Sure. We never really separated or did what I would call programs focused on metastatic. However, over the last few years, we've had many more requests for programs that were specific to that. And for our mentoring program, yes, we would match people that way always. But for our general programs, there were not things necessarily specifically for metastatic. Occasionally, yes, but most of the time it was for anyone with breast cancer. And so I would say that we are on a journey to figure out how to meet those needs of women with metastatic breast cancer, men too, but certainly we deal with many more women than we even see men uh, come through the doors of Pink House. Is it a formalized mentoring program that can really focus on metastatic? Are there certain um, groups that we want to put together that go beyond a support group that pulls people together? In other words, educational sessions that cover specific topics that women with metastatic breast cancer would want to learn about. And so we're eager to hear and learn and gather information as well and expand our programs. We have about 30 programs a month that we provide free of charge here at the Pink House. And of course, when COVID hit, we made all of those virtual. We also created a Carolina Breast Friends YouTube channel. So with that YouTube channel, we can record the programs, we can upload them to the YouTube channel, and then people can access them whenever they want to. That's one thing that grew out of COVID. We found that people around the country are accessing our YouTube channel because it's promoted separately from Carolina Breast Friends because you don't have to have been to the Pink House to be able to benefit out of a program. And we've done several things lately on sexuality and intimacy and just a number of different things that if we wanted a variety of topics anyway, um, input from people living with metastatic breast cancer to what that might be or what a series of programs that people could access would have on them. We really appreciate your support and your openness. Women with metastatic breast cancer are living longer. And fortunately, we have the opportunity to put together some programming that provides some support for the metastatic community. And and I've heard in the past, we really didn't do programs for metastatic because they didn't live very long. So very grateful for for, um, your support and the opportunities to grow those programs. It was interesting during the support group yesterday, I had two volunteers that were working in the kind of dining room shut-off area. And when I passed through there, they said, what's that group talking about? And I said, well, it's a group of women that have metastatic breast cancer. 
They seem to be very engaged. Who is their comment? I don't think people understand what metastatic breast cancer is, for one thing. And so I was glad they at least asked the question. You walk into the pink house and you feel like a big hug. (laughs) I mean, it's just such a welcoming place and it's comfortable and it's wonderful for those of us in our support group to have the opportunity to be able to meet there instead of at the back of a restaurant down the street, which is what we were doing. (laughs) So this has been um, a godsend to us to be able to have this opportunity. We're even going to have a chocolate night because you have a kitchen that we can all... (laughs) hang out in. Marin's going to provide uh, some education for us on how to make chocolates the proper way. And we're going to have chocolate night. (laughs) Oh, yes. My best kept secret is going to be out. I'm going to be outed as a professional chocolatier. So, oh boy. (laughs) Your facility makes it so easy for us to do those things, but it is an opportunity, I think, for us to be able to interact with the early stage um, breast cancer patients and help with some education there so that they can understand maybe a little better and have a panel dialogue so that they can see why our needs are a little different than their needs. Now, I have a question. You're doing all this wonderful stuff. How do you afford to do it? (laughs) That's a great question. We exist on donations and fundraisers. Uh, We have two major fundraisers each year. One is Pink Boots. It's usually a Pink Boots ball. We've been at different hotels, including the Ritz-Carlton the last few years. Last year, we didn't get to have any of our fundraisers. That put us in a a very challenging financial situation. And so we continued to get donations from people that would donate to us. And we did some creative fundraising during the year, but nothing in person or nothing that related to an event. So this year, we do have our two events. One is Pink Boots, and this time it'll be outdoors. So it's Pink Boots on the lawn at the Mint Museum. And we're looking forward to that. Tickets are selling well. And so we're hopeful for that one. And so that's one thing. And then the other is Dancing with the Stars, where 13 people in the city and surrounding areas agree to raise $30,000 each and to take a lot of dance lessons and then perform (laughs) on stage um, at the Night Theater for a huge fundraiser. Beyond that, it's individual donations and grants. And we currently have a grant from the Leon Levine Foundation that we're extremely grateful for and have asked for renewal for this next year as well. And then we got two PPP loans for businesses and foundations and organizations that were in losing funds last year. I applied for both of those and we were very fortunate to be able to receive those, which helped us pay payroll, which means we did not have to reduce any staff during the past year and could keep everything we have been doing going. So one thing that's evident is you have a passion. I have a huge passion for working in the cancer area and creating and doing anything I can to improve the lives of people living with cancer, in particular women. So what do you see as the future for the Pink House as far as anything additionally you you have on the plans and goals, you know? We would love to continue expanding programs and figuring out what people want, what we can provide, what we can offer. We try to be very creative. If we hear of something, you know, that somebody says, I've really benefited from 
hearing, it could have been a podcast, it could have been an article they read or a book they read, then we try to go after the person or the group that might have provided that and see if they can provide something for Carolina Breast Friends that we can record and upload. So we're always looking for ability to do that. The other thing that we have talked a lot about is how would we um, grow our mentoring program even beyond way out of the Charlotte area, since we know we can do that virtually. And then the third thing would be, do we need to set up some in-person support program opportunities, because people still like to meet in person, especially when we get through all of this COVID. Not everything has to be done that way, but enough things. It just means so much. And Christy's vision early on was, let's help as many people as we can. And of course, part of our mission is serving anyone, anywhere, and meeting people where they are in their journey, no matter how long the journey is. Uh, I have talked to Magbis Love, who is your um, lead facilitator for your program for Latino women here in Charlotte. And um, so super impressed that you were able to see a population in need and pull something together for that specific population. Thank you for mentioning that, because that's one of the areas we'd really like to grow to. We're putting in for a grant to see if we could do some more programs in Spanish that could go on the YouTube channel. We've got one on um, how to use the nurse navigator and what is a nurse navigator because many uh, women with breast cancer are assigned a nurse navigator, but if you're Spanish speaking and you're not quite sure what does that person do, then this gives you some explanation for it. We've got several things that introduce the support program and they have grown dramatically and we're very proud of La Casa Rosada as we call it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I have yet to catch a meeting, but one of these days oh, I'm going gonna, gonna to get there because there's a special place in my heart for the yes. Latina community here in Charlotte. And yes. um, it's so important that they get the healthcare services that they need. So. Oh, it is. At some point, raise the money to be able to have a social worker that is mm-hmm. bilingual that can help. Because a lot of times the questions come in, I'm on disability right now. How do I get through the system and make sure I've got everything filed the way I should, those types of things. So there are a lot of questions that come in that we don't have the expertise here to help with. And well, we can refer people, but, you know. We know that nice. our, a large percentage of our Latina population is undocumented as well. So exactly. um, they certainly have special needs that the rest of us don't have to, don't have to deal with. Correct. Victoria, are there any questions you can think of that you wanted to ask that we haven't asked yet? Because it's so good that, I'm fresh out of questions, except maybe for one. For people who don't live in uh, North Carolina, but they will listen to this podcast and they will realize that you're doing an amazing work and they would want to contribute. How do they find you? Can they volunteer long distance or do you prefer people to live in the area? And uh, what can they do to help out if they decide they want to? They can find us at carolinabreastfriends.org. Easy to find our website. And um, it is Carolina, not Carolinas, and Breast Friends. You can find us that way. Sometimes you can find us by looking up the Pink House. We, we call ourselves the Pink House here, but the organization is Carolina Breast Friends. And we operate, obviously, as the Pink House here. 
It doesn't matter whether you live in town or not. You can easily donate if you wish to on our website. You can reach out to us and talk about how you would like to donate or help. If you want to volunteer, we've got a form on our website, or you can reach out to us too. We do have volunteers. We would love to hear from people. And and if we can help anyone, reach out to Carolina Breast Friends as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I only have to say that there is one thing I'm envious of now, that I don't live in Charlotte. And I may have to consider moving, actually. Come on down, Victoria. I was going to say, come visit. uh, If you could see our Carolina blue sky right now, you wouldn't hesitate. We'll absolutely consider that. (laughs) Definitely. And after today, there are so many good reasons to. (laughs) You have an open invitation. Thank you. What you do is wonderful, 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 wonderful. Now, I have a question for you. I'm going to make you use your brain. Describe your organization in three words. Compassionate. I would have to use mentoring. So compassionate, mentoring, support. Perfect. And my word that I would add to that would be warm and welcoming. (laughs) And the word that I would add... Is, is visionary. I, I honestly don't know how many cities have a pink house or have an organization like yours. I'd be interested to know. But again, very grateful. And I think more people need to utilize the resource that, that we have and people don't know about it, increasing awareness so that we're accessing um, more women that need that support and men. We have talked about that. How could we do Pink House in a Box? That we could put together the things that we think are unique to this place. So whether you had a actual structure that you could put it in, or you just had a group of passionate volunteers and even staff that could deliver what we try to make happen every day out of wherever you are. So therefore, Pink House in a box. So I don't know whether we'll get that created, but uh, we have had lots of requests for, can you share templates and lots of different things? And uh, we're happy to answer any questions that come through. Well, I think this podcast will maybe, you know, plant a seed in some people's minds of, hey, what can I do in in my community? How can we make something like this happen? We appreciate you taking the time today to, uh, to spend with us. Thank you so much for doing what you do and continue doing it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for spending time with us today. My pleasure. (laughs) Bye-bye. And as promised, here is our friend Dar bringing us a dash of joy. Hi, Dar here with a dash of joy. Let's talk about joy. You know the drill. You jump out of bed, grab a coffee, catch up on emails and social media while you're eating your breakfast. You quickly shower, dress, and then you really begin your day. Does this sound familiar? Now erase that scenario. Instead, imagine yourself lying in bed for a few luxurious minutes and giving thanks for the day. Then go make your coffee or tea and take it to a favorite chair. Your next step is to do nothing. You heard me. Just do nothing for five minutes. Close your eyes right now 
and imagine it. Five whole minutes of actually doing nothing. Today, I'd like to chat with you about the joy of doing nothing. Think back to your summer vacation. The first few days that you're there, you're still pretty uptight, feeling like you need to be doing things and accomplishing something. Then as the week goes on, you find yourself getting a little more comfortable with just hanging in bed a little longer in the morning, taking a meandering walk, maybe even sneaking in an afternoon nap and sitting around chatting with family and friends. You're relaxed and peaceful. You have unlocked the joy of doing nothing. But as soon as we return to our regular lives, we quickly pick up where we left off and forget those glorious days. If we do remember them, we push them away, saying we're way too busy to spend time doing nothing. But research tells us a very different story. When we tune out and become mindless, we activate something in our brains that neuroscientists call the default mode network, or DMN which allows us to connect new dots and come up with novel ideas and even assess ourselves and psyches in new ways. In other words, we truly connect with ourselves when we do nothing. There's a full laundry list of the benefits of doing nothing. When your brain rests, it becomes more creative. Problems that seem difficult suddenly have a solution. It can alert you that something is maybe not quite right with you. When you stop your busyness, you may find that you start experiencing thoughts and feelings that you've been shutting out. Surprisingly, doing nothing may also help you to be kinder. When we're just sitting with our thoughts, we explore new ways to have a larger sense of purpose. And this can lead us to including meaningful activities in our lives that extend out to helping others. I know, it sounds like doing nothing's a pretty good thing, right? Well, so how do you go about doing nothing? While it might sound easy, I can tell you from experience, it can feel awkward and uncomfortable at first. I really didn't think I could do it. I love being busy and being engaged with people. So sitting quietly with my own thoughts downright scared me. But I took a deep breath, tried it. And when it didn't kill me, I decided to keep on doing it. Now, my do-nothing time is my favorite part of my day. Whenever you're going to begin, the first thing you need to do is try to find a place that has very few distractions. I prefer my back porch because it looks out onto the woods and it's very quiet and peaceful. When I first started, I selected about the same time every day and put it on my calendar so I wouldn't be tempted to procrastinate and not do it, and it would become a habit. The next step is to disconnect all electronic devices. That includes turning off your phone and the television. Now, the next step, I think, is probably the hardest, and that is getting rid of the guilt of doing nothing. We all think that we have to be accomplishing something 28 hours a day, but surely you deserve five minutes a day just for you. Now, all you have left to do is to sit in the silence and do nothing for five minutes. I set a timer so I'm not constantly looking at my watch thinking, has five minutes passed yet? In the beginning, 
I found very hard to do. My thoughts kept going to my to-do list and all the things I wasn't doing, but I kept gently pushing those thoughts aside and focused on my surroundings, the birds singing, the fountain gurgling, my heart beating, and my breath going in and out. After about a week of doing this, I found myself looking forward to my quiet time and began pushing it out to 10, 15, and now even 20 minutes a day. I'm shocked at the restored energy and renewed mental capacity I have after these sessions. I've also discovered many other ways to disconnect and do nothing. One of my favorites is what I call Dar's Afternoon of Rest. I block an entire afternoon on my calendar, just like it's an important appointment that I must do. Because honestly, I believe it is an important appointment with myself. I say no to chores, emails, social media, TV, virtual meetings, and phone calls. But I say yes to quiet meandering walks. Yes to reading an easy fiction book. Yes to creative painting. Yes to bubble baths with my favorite music. And yes to naps. You get the idea. Quiet, solitary activities that don't require you to think too much. Doing nothing while on the surface appears to be wasting time may become the most joyous part of your day. I hope you'll continue to join me on my joyful adventure on the RMBC Life Trailblazer episodes the last Thursday of each month. Until we chat again, go. Have a joyful day. This podcast was produced by me, Victoria Goldberg, and Dar Finkelstein, with help from our guest host, Marin Kaufman. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Every episode is supported by our incredible senior team. You can find more episodes of our NBC Live wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. And look for a new Trailblazer and Dash of Joy episode on the last Thursday of the month. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at ourmbclife.org. Sign up for our news blast. We would love to hear from you.